0: Good morning. Would it be okay if I started off this morning by sharing just a little bit of a story about our nine-year-old son, Brock? Yeah, I promise you're not going to tell him, though, are you? He gets a little sensitive about being, uh, being shared about in public here. But several years ago, uh, he was probably three, four years old, uh, he, he would tell us at certain times that he wanted to have a little bit of prophecy. And it would usually occur in times like when he was getting dressed in his bedroom. He'd say, would someone close the door? I need a little prophecy. (laughs) Or he would be in the bathtub and he would say something like, keep the door closed. I need a little prophecy in here. And of course, I'm sometimes a bit of a wise guy, and so I'd say, okay, Brock, I'll give you, I'll give you a little prophecy. I, I prophesy that you're gonna come out of that bathtub cleaner than when you first went into the bathtub. And of course, he didn't quite get the joke, but you know what he was struggling with? He was getting the words prophecy and privacy confused right so we were we didn't correct him for the longest time because it was just too funny you know how some of that goes uh it just seemed like he was always working in this idea of a little prophecy particularly when he and his brother had a bedroom that they shared but today i am going to give you a little prophecy in fact we're going to begin a new series today going through one of the minor prophets malachi but uh it's minor not because the message is minor Uh, This portion of scripture, these books here are called minor because they're smaller than than a book like Jeremiah or Isaiah, what what is typically considered a a major prophet. But uh, let me help you locate Malachi. Just go to Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Then, then you'll come right into Malachi. Or you can go to Matthew and take a left because it is the last book of the Old Testament. Let's begin by looking at the first verse. Malachi 1 verse 1 says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Malachi uh, is the prophet's name. uh, Speaking to the nation of Israel. We'll look a little bit more about the, the timeline in just a moment. Your version might use the word oracle. It might use the word burden. And so there's this idea of a weightiness to the message. Uh, Was it a burden for Malachi to give this message? Probably in one sense it was, because it was not an easy message that he was given by God to give. And if you think about it, most of the messages that the prophets were given were not easy messages. Think about what they did in standing in front of the people and how they oftentimes were received by the people for what they were saying. Again, only as the messengers, but yet there's this idea of the burden, but not just because it was hard, but the idea of a burden because it was difficult in the sense of it being important. He wanted to to, to communicate on behalf of God, uh, as he should. And so this Hebrew word is sometimes called, uh, translated, to lift up or to carry, to bear, as in a burden. But uh, you might have the word oracle as well. Malachi is both concluding the Old Testament, but connecting to the New Testament. What do I mean by that? It is the conclusion of the Old Testament. There will be 400, approximately 400 years of silence to the nation of Israel. That means that in all of these years, these long lines of prophets, all the communication of God to the people, there's going to be a 400-year period with nothing. And who's the last one that's going to speak to them? Malachi. And in fact, we'll see the concluding words of the Old Testament as we as we move through this series. But we see that it is a conclusion, but it also connects because as we will see in a few weeks when we're in the fourth chapter, there is a prediction that would be fulfilled in the coming of John the Baptist. And that is fulfilled in the first chapter of Mark Also, Matthew chapter 11 alludes to this. And so we see that it it concludes, but it also connects because it it is speaking of another day that would be to come. Malachi is the messenger and his name means my messenger. Very fitting name for this prophet. The time of his prophecy is given approximately 450 or 460 B.C., to as early as 400 BC, uh, the main thing that we know is that the people of Israel have returned from uh, from being held captive in in uh, Babylon and in Persia, and so we know that they've returned. We know that the that the temple has been rebuilt. We know that uh, that uh, Ezra and Nehemiah they're it's, 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 they're they're contemporaries, and so if you think about the the uh, the first group of of the people of Israel coming back from Babylonian captivity, that would be about four hundred and thirty eight BC. Um, excuse me. 538 B.C. And then as we get into more recent history, you can see the temple is rebuilt under Haggai and Zechariah. That's about 516 B.C. A little more recent would be Ezra coming, uh, 458 B.C. Then you have Nehemiah. Nehemiah is known as building what? Building the walls, right? And then you have Malachi right in there. In fact, if you look at some of the themes of Nehemiah, they're very similar to some themes that you see in Malachi. You see a priesthood that is corrupt. You see marriages that are being uh given from from a, a Israelite to a, to a to one following a pagan religion. Uh you see social injustices, etc. So you 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 can see many common themes from Malachi to Nehemiah. And so that's the the, the time period is very very similar. Uh, so it's logical for us to assume that the date of Malachi came right in at that point. Now, we don't know anything else about Malachi. He's not mentioned in any other Old Testament book, although he is quoted uh, six times in the New Testament. Here's how one commentator said it. Ken Trevett said, Nehemiah sought to rebuild a city and Malachi sought to recall a people. Nehemiah focuses upon the condition of a place, but Malachi focuses Upon the condition of a people. What do we know about him? We know that he was bold. He was courageous. I, I use the word bold because a lot of what he's saying is directed to the spiritual and religious leaders of the day. And he comes at them. And he, and he has words that are in, in, in indictments in some cases to the leaders of, of, uh, of, of Israel, the spiritual leaders. See, he was bold. He also did not compromise as you'll see as he as he interacts over six different uh messages to the to the people, uh, that he does not compromise. He tells the people that their worship has grown cold, that they are insincere. He he calls them out on the, the, the questions of faithlessness that they that they have in their in their in their minds. And so he doesn't compromise, he is bold. As I said, he's quoted in the New Testament, uh in the book of uh Matthew, he's quoted uh twice, also in Mark. In Luke and in Romans. And so this uh, uh, is, is interesting as you, as you connect back from the New Testament to the Old. Let's think a little bit about the audience, the people uh, whom he was addressing. As I said earlier, the, uh, the temple had already been rebuilt. It is alluded to in uh, verse 10 of chapter 1. Also in the third chapter it's alluded to. But it's not the temple uh, uh, in, in, in the sense of the, glory, uh, the glorious temple of Solomon's day. Uh, this this temple had been burned out. It was a shell. They had come back in and, and 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 rebuilt it to a degree, but it was nothing like what it had been before. And they weren't able to replace the silver and the gold and all of the the, uh, the opulence that that had been there. Uh, and so uh, uh, they had a temple. It was functional. There was worship happening, but it wasn't like it used to be. You also see that they are referred to as Israel. So this would of course be the the uh uh not only the ten northern tribes, but would at this point in history would refer to the entire nation of Israel, even the two southern tribes of Judah. The people were very discouraged. This was a golden age for some nations, but not for Israel. If we had gone to Greece, we would see Sophocles and Pericles, we'd see Plato, Aristotle, you'd see, you'd see the golden age of Greece right about this time. This was, this was uh, you know, you'd, you'd be thinking of, of the Parthenon, the Acropolis. You'd think of all the building that's happening there, and and uh, and, and uh, all the wealth of Greece and its empire. Or maybe you would look at at, uh, at Persia or other nations that, that had a lot. This this was not this was not uh, what was happening uh, for the nation of Israel. In fact, from a Jew's point of view, it was anything but a golden era. They were very discouraged. They had returned from exile about 60 or 70 years before. Uh, again, having been under the Babylonian Empire, then under the Persian Empire. And now they're back in their land, but they don't even have their own king. They have an appointed governor uh, from Persia that's overseeing them. They are they are rebuilding, but, but it's their efforts are hard. They're discouraged. Uh, we read in Malachi that their farms are not producing well, that there were periods of drought, that there was economic trouble. And, uh, and so it was, it was a very depressing and discouraging time. And if, if you had, had entered into their society at that time and, and had a message to them about the love of God, they would have responded with a question, which we'll read here in just a few minutes, because they would say, look around at us. Look at what we have been through. You certainly couldn't talk to God's love about us. Look at the circumstances that we're going through. They would question His love for them. They would think that that was something of the past. And what happens when people lose their sense of God's love? You know what happens? They lose their love for God. They lose their love for others. And how might that be seen throughout a society? We could stop just for a moment and talk about our own society, couldn't we? We could talk about the parallels of of their time, uh, with our time, differences as well, but, but some parallels, some spiritual parallels uh, that, that, you, that you see in Malachi's time. So their, their, their love for God had grown cold, and that's going to be exhibited in the way that they worship, in the way that they serve, the way that they give, the way that they grumble. Over and over, we're going to see that they, that they have this half-heartedness, this, this this way of going through the, the rituals. Yeah, they might go to the temple. They might do what they're supposed to do, but their hearts aren't in it. It's cold. And we see how it impacts. There's going to be a section that talks about their family life and about how how their the husbands have left their the wives of their youth. How they have gone off and, and found other wives. They've broken covenant in their marriages. It talks about conflict between fathers and sons. And where did it all begin? It began when they questioned God's love, because then the results were even the way that they related to one another within their society. Here's how Ray Steadman explained it. He said, A strange sort of relativism broke out, which Malachi described as calling good evil and evil good. There was injustice in the courts, oppression of minority groups, And the nation was cold and destitute of love because the Jews felt that God no longer loved them. So God raised up this prophet to tell them again of the love of God. So that's going to be the first message that we're going to be looking at this morning is, 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 is this message of God's love and God's commitment, because right now their heart was far from him. In fact, Uh, We're going to see Malachi coming to the people with six different messages, six different disagreements is really how it's structured. In fact, I was I was really looking over this and thought, we've only got five Sundays between now and Easter. You know, how am I going to get all through all six of these? I needed one more week, but I I didn't know if you guys would be okay with pushing Easter off one more Sunday. (laughs) So I'm going to try to combine a couple of them along the way here. Um, but let's—it's very interesting how Malachi is structured. Um, I'm calling it six disagreements. The—the the technical uh, uh, phrase would be a rhetorical disputation, where there is a a question that's given, a very piercing. Uh, uh, excuse me. There's an accusation that's given, a very piercing accusation. You have done such and such, which is responded by. Uh, from the people with with a question. So the prophet makes an accusation about what's happening. The people give uh, a a response by questioning it, almost in a very sarcastic way. And then and then after that question, the prophet responds with a very serious response by saying, by doing such and such. And so we're going to see this happen six times where he comes in. He makes a statement about what's not right. The people question him. Almost like they challenge him. Prove it. Prove it, Malachi, that this is really happening. And then he goes right in with what is happening. And again, oftentimes we see him addressing spiritual leaders. Other times we see him addressing the nation as a whole. But uh, either way, we see that the people had grown callous. They had become indifferent to God, unresponsive to Him. And yet we have a picture of a God who is pursuing and I don't want us to forget that because we're going to be looking at some very challenging passages. And I, I want to say one thing from the beginning. I see a lot of parallels from the book of Malachi that, that, that relate right into to our nation, into our culture, into even the, the churched culture of America. We we see some of this, this same indifference or we see some of the same lack of commitment. But I do want to assure you. I'm not picking the book Malachi to go through because I think necessarily that all these things are happening within our church right now. That's that's not the reason. But I do think that each one of us, myself included, will be able to look at these disagreements and we can find vestiges within them that we say, you know, I can relate to that. Already this morning we've talked about the times in which we are prone to wander, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Well, we're going to be looking at how the people of Malachi's day were prone to wander. How they had become indifferent. How how their hearts had grown cold. It kind of reminds me of of the one of the churches in Asia Minor, the Church of Laodicea. Right. You get this half half lukewarm type of a temperature. And so so these are these are our points that that we can connect to as we think about our serving. As we think about our heart and giving. As we think about our marriages. As we think about looking to what God has. In his kingdom next. I mean, all of these are messages that I think are very appropriate for us today. Even though the contexts may be a little different, I think we can look at them and say, OK, there certainly is a reason why they have been preserved here in God's word. And they are uh, helpful for us in our spiritual walk today. Let's look at these six disagreements very quickly. You can see uh, the first one we'll look at this morning. They denied God's covenant love. They defiled God's altar. We'll be looking at that one, Lord willing, next week. It was the, the approach in which they went to worship. Uh, we already referenced the marriages that they were uh, struggling with, despising God's standards. They were disregarding the tithe and the way in which they gave to the Lord. And then in the end, they were even using God's name, damaging his name uh, throughout their country, which was very serious offense. And so the overarching theme through each of these is that God is calling back to a renewed commitment. And that certainly is a message that would resonate for us to be to be called back to a deeper commitment. There is a warning that is found in Malachi, but there is also hope woven throughout these verses you say, what is the hope? The hope is that there is a God who yet comes again to reaffirm his love and his commitment to his people. That when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. I know that sounds like a verse out of James, but listen to, to Malachi 3, 7. You could almost see this is a key verse from uh, uh, from Malachi's book, he says in verse seven of chapter three, this is just a portion of it, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. He speaks to a people who had been indifferent, a people who had been uncommitted, a people whose heart had grown apathetic. And yet here he says, return. You're welcome back. Come back. Yes, it may involve repentance. It revol- involves a, a turning around. But I want you to come and I will renew you. I will restore you. I am still your God. And I think that's a, 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 a word for us today to, to, to grab and to, to hang on to. Yes, it is a challenging book. It's calling for the people of God in that day to examine their spiritual lives. It's a book that calls them to examine degrees of sinfulness within them. But yet it is a call for renewal. Here's how Thomas McComiskey says says this in his uh, uh, commentary on the Minor Prophets. He says, anyone who reads Malachi and hears only words of recrimination and judgment has not read them fairly. Within the dismal events this prophet describes, lurks the hand of God. And beyond these events is the bright prospect of a kingdom. So just think, it might have been a dark time, but the prophet was pointing to a new day. The prophet was pointing to a time in which a new day would dawn. A new kingdom would come. A new covenant would be fulfilled. Of course, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, there was still hundreds of years to go, but there was hope being captured here. There was being given to these people to know that God's plan was not over. Well, that's that that part right there. That's that's been 20 minutes approximately. That's just an introduction of the book. That's Malachi, that's the the people to whom he was speaking to, that's the time frame, that's the the overarching theme and themes that we'll be looking at. But let's take just a few minutes and look at the first one. I'll do this one quickly. And it's the first disagreement that they had, and that is that God's love is questioned, or God's love was doubted. If you look at verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, I have loved you. God is declaring His love to them. And I, I, I think we touched on this last week in uh, the message out of Ephesians chapter 3 that also spoke about the height and depth and width and breadth of God's love. When God uses the word love, He's not talking only about an emotion or a feeling. Love involves emotions and feelings, but it's, it doesn't stop there. That's not the totality of, of love because, because feelings change, don't they? How many of you ever? How many of you? You don't have to answer this. You have to raise your hand. You don't have to elbow anybody. But how many of you have ever felt in love and then felt out of love? Just days. That you're just not feeling real loving or lovable, right? Okay. You don't have to agree. That's okay. But you understand those those feelings come and go. That's not all that love is. Love is a commitment. Love is a commitment that says, "I am with you even when I don't feel like being with you." I'm committed to you even when my feelings and my desire may not match it. That's the kind of commitment that God is displaying. That's not to say that his feelings are wrong. I'm speaking it from a, from a human perspective. But sometimes we use the word love and we're only speaking about the, emo, the emotive side. And here, here we're, we, we see that it's much fuller than that. God has a love for His people. He even uses the tense in the perfect tense. Meaning that God had loved them in the past, but He still loves them in the present. He's not saying, I used to love you. He says, I have. I have loved you. Deuteronomy chapter 7 encapsulates this love. And I've, I've only put up a portion of it, the beginning of, of 6 and the end of 9. But let me read this. Uh, to you out of Deuteronomy 7, going way back into the Old Testament, going way back into the history of the nation of Israel to hear the kind of love that God had for his, has for His people. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You are a people set apart. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. And we're going to see that phrase Come back up in Malachi as well. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand And redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Verse nine. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Now there's a statement. About the the magnitude of God's love to His people. So here again, in the final book of the Old Testament, we have God emphasizing His love. But the love is doubted. Here's the question. But you say, how have you loved us? And you might ask, how could they ask that question? How could the people respond to God's prophet with a question, How have you loved us? But yet, I think if we were to consider their question with an honest assessment of our own spiritual lives, would we not see that there have also been times that we probably have questioned God's love? If we're just going to be real honest, that we stop and we just look. and, And usually that's due to what? What would usually bring us to a point to question God's love? Adversity. Adversity? Trouble. I'm I'm, I'm calling it circumstances. You know, just difficult circumstances. This would be one of the reasons why we would look around and say, life is hard right now. Life is difficult. Because, you know, even as Christians, you know, we still deal with, with difficulty. We still have disease we have diagnoses that are that are very unpleasant and difficult. We have uh, even even at times you see very young people with with diagnoses diagnoses that are that are that are uh, that, that will be fatal. You look at that. You look at you look at, at, at accidents, or you look at, at relational problems, or you look at job problems, or economic struggles and challenges, and all these things, all of these circumstances could lead us to believe that God must not love us. And that probably flows out of the understanding that we believe that God's in charge, right? That We know that He's, He's in control, that, that He can do anything, and yet why are we experiencing the things that we're experiencing, these different realms of hardship? And so trying to, to understand in a, in a finite mind how to, how to bring these thoughts together of God being in charge, and yet people still having all kinds of suffering in a times abuse... Maybe you've you've gone through just horrific experiences by the hands of others, maybe even as a child, and and you you really, really, really look back and you 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 begin to to think about the love of God and where it was in all of that. You you hear, hear writers like is it Ellie Weissel who who writes about being in a in a concentration camp as a child and you just you read what he went through. And what he saw and experienced. You hear the questions about them asking, you know, is, 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 where, where is God? And others in the, in the line there at the concentration camp saying, well, God must be dead. He must be hanging in the gallows. And a lot of philosophical uh, arguments on what that might mean. But, but the bottom line is there's questions that come when the circumstances are hard. I've already told you about the circumstances of their day and what it was like coming out of captivity, having a, a, an appointed governor, having, having economic problems, having, having problems in the home, having problems throughout their nation. And they are questioning. They are questioning whether God really did love them. One of my favorite pastors to read... I don't read him nearly enough, but his name's Charles Hedden Spurgeon. And if you, you can find most anything that he's written, it's available online. From the 1800s was a pastor in London and, uh, really tremendous, tremendous orator. And, uh, there's a, a story that's told kind of on him, not, not really, not really in his best light probably, but he was walking through the English countryside with a friend. And as they're walking, walking through, uh, uh, through this, this little rural area, he notices that there's a weather vane up on the top of a barn. And the weather vane, if you look at it, this probably isn't the exact one, but it says the same message. It says, God is love. And, uh, Spurgeon looked at that and thought, what a strange place for the phrase, God is love, to be on a weather vane. Because we know that, that those weather vanes, they spin all around. Whatever direction the wind's coming from, it changes. He says, and God's love, is not changing. So he you know, he was righteously indignant, I suppose, over the, uh, the way they put this together. But his friend said, Charles, I don't know that you're seeing it in the way that it was intended. Because as I look up at that weather vane and I see it saying God is love in the different directions that are there, I think it's indicating a different truth. Regardless of which way the wind blows, God is love. And we think about that in our own lives and we can look back and we could probably stand and testify of things that we've been through, circumstances that we've endured, where we just didn't understand it, didn't make sense. Russ and I went on a, on a visit this week. that was just heart wrenching seeing a young lady in her 20s just about to, to pass from this life. It was hard wasn't it russ and i we it was one of the hardest visits we've made i've i've, I've stood and and done funerals of children before young children and those are things i, I can remember one another one that i was a part of where it was a suicide and the uh the young children trying to offer comfort to a junior high girl and a high school son who'd been left behind There are hard circumstances. You guys could add to that list. We could come up with all kinds of things. And yet through that, as believers, we are reminded that we need the love of God. That we need His presence in those situations. That we need Him carrying us through. We may not understand all the reasons why. But we can know that God does promise to have a love for us. To bring us through. There's another reason why we sometimes question God's love. And it's described here in the latter part of verse 2 all the way through verse 4. And that is that the history that we've had with God can be forgotten. And it's probably, again, kind of related to the first point about the circumstances. But we can forget. And that's what had happened in the nation of Israel. Here's how he addressed it. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? That's interesting, isn't it? Of all things that he could come up with. He's pointing out Jacob and Esau. Declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. We'll talk about that word in just a minute. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says they may rebuild, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Wow. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Hear those words from Malachi, right? God's anger upon the Edomites. Why? Some some difficult questions raised here, right? First of all, I think He's wanting them to look back and to see that they were a special people with a special covenant and that God chose Jacob. Jacob and Esau were were brothers. In fact, they were twin brothers. Who was the oldest? Esau. Who was the one who should have received the the inheritance, the the blessing from Abraham and Isaac to Jacob? But who should have gone to? If you were thinking about the culture of that day, it would have gone to the firstborn. Even if it's just a few minutes, the firstborn is still the firstborn. But that's not how it worked here. It was Jacob. Genesis chapter 27, if you want to read about it. Esau should have had the inheritance. You look at at what that would have meant, the land, the promise, all of these things. But that wasn't part of God's plan. You say, well, did God really hate Esau? Now, if you continue to follow through the history of the the Edomites, they were were against God. And that's where you see the the judgment that comes, is the fact that they they were against God all the way through. They were enemies of God. But I think this word hatred needs to be understood in the proper context. Because I don't think that what we're seeing here is the same way that we would use the word in, in our English language today. It's very similar to Luke chapter 14. When Jesus says in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's a, that, that's, that's a difficult verse too, isn't it? You think, well, wait a minute, I, I thought I read in Ephesians and in, in other places that I'm to love my wife, but here it says I'm to hate my wife. Well, it, 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 it's one of those challenges when words that were used in one language are translated into another. What's really meant by it? And so if you're thinking about the covenant word love and you're also thinking about the word hate, it's speaking of not loving like you would love God. It's a difference. There's a difference there. And uh, one is speaking of choosing intimate fellowship and the other is not. And so it's 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 not telling us that we hate others, but we're, we are called not to love them more than we have love for God even close family, even our own lives, that God is preeminent. He is first. And so we we see this word hatred both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, which could be pulled out of context and used uh, in different ways. But when you think about the Edomites as a people, they they were setting themselves against God and they were judged by that. But if you think about Jacob, did he deserve the blessing? Was he just this morally upright, outstanding person? Jacob was what? He was a deceiver, wasn't he? Now, there were obviously elements in his life where he did have a heart for God, but he wasn't a perfect person. He wasn't receiving a blessing or the the choice based upon what he did, right? So God was, was demonstrating to them that what they had in terms of a special covenant with him was not their own doing or their own choice. It was something that he had done for them. He was reminding them of their history. Even though they Esau could have been the one that was chosen, God, for whatever reason, decided he would work through the lineage of, of, uh, of Jacob. Now, you look at that and you think, well, there's obviously examples throughout the Old Testament and certainly in the New Testament where, where God's love went way beyond that, Right? where you see people out of the Gentile nations and the Gentile peoples, which I believe was always His plan. And you see that throughout the pages of Scripture. But I think that there is a reminder that God's love was given in such a way that we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, we didn't create our own salvation. It humbles us. It reminds us of what He has done. It removes self-reliance. When we have a greater perspective of what God's grace has looked like. And it's so interesting that when you get to verse 5, it says, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Interesting, isn't it? That his love is expansive, that he pauses to give glory to God, to praise him for his love. You know, God's love is also spoken of in the New Testament. So many verses we could bring, I'm only going to pick one. And that's 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Because I have a feeling that there could be some in our midst this morning that could say, you know, I, I may have a little more in common with the people in Malachi's day than I'd like to admit. I've had seasons, or maybe am going through a season, where I'm struggling. I'm struggling with understanding the love of God. And I feel that my heart and my faith has waned. I can look in and remember times when I was on fire for the Lord. I can remember when I was pursuing Him early in the morning and He was was in my thoughts throughout the day. But now I feel as if maybe my heart's growing cold. You don't have to answer this. You don't have to raise your hand. But have you been there? I think we probably all at some point, even as Christians, can go through those seasons where our love wanes. So could Malachi be a book that reminds us to come back to, to, to not, not just think about the circumstances, which can oftentimes overwhelm us, but to remember the history? And you know what's amazing? If you think about it, they could look back to Deuteronomy or they could look back to, to, to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But church, what do we get to look back to? What in our Christian faith is part of our history? What is it that in six weeks we will be celebrating? See, we get to look back to Jesus. We get to look back to the, the Messiah having come, having fulfilled all of the prophecy. We get to look back to Him living a perfect life and healing the sick and raising the dead and, and loving the children, loving the sinner, dying on the cross. And glory be to God rising from the dead. We get to look back to that. And that's why I think the Apostle John could say, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Maybe this morning you need to hear God's word through Malachi say, I have loved you. I have loved you. God says, I love you. Even in the circumstances, That we don't understand. That we would never choose. And we frankly think that we might not even deserve. Even in the midst of all of that, we hear the words from the throne of God say, I love you. I love you. Would you bow with me, please? Father, we thank you for your love. We're so much like the people of Israel, and we didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve being considered your own, your treasure, your children. But somehow by your grace and for your glory, you have called us and allowed us to know you. To be redeemed by you. And Father, we thank you for that. And we pray for one another today. Lord, only you know the hearts in this room. Only you. Only you know the ones that need to be reminded of your love again today. Only you know the ones in this room. That need their hearts rekindled. So Father, we... We want to be honest today. We want to lay ourselves before you. And we pray that we can be renewed where that's needed. And that we can be restored. Father, we pray for our city. We pray for our nation. We see how far we have fallen. How we have questioned your love and we've questioned your word. So many ways we've just thumbed our nose. So God, we start as a church. We repent. And we ask for renewal. May you guide us through these next weeks as we move through Malachi. May you do it for your glory and for your purposes. We pray this in Christ's name. And all of God's people said...